and welcome to the Glacier Musical Podcast. The we are on the musical history portion of the week. I am joined by Keefe Keefe Queso of Ghost Cult Magazine and Mexican Restaurant. It was Nacho Night tonight. Sorry. Hola. ¿Qué tal? ¿Cómo estás? ¿Está bien? No, está bien. Yo no tengo nada hambre porque yo comí las los nachos. Sorry, I hope that wasn't offensive. I actually speak Spanish. Well, you got me beat. Um, it's only anyway. two dialects. All right, fair enough. How are you doing, Nicholas? I'm good. It has been uh, a week full of morons at work that blame me for not sending them something to the right place when they never gave me an address. What? So I'm dealing um, with that. And, hey, there's a kitty. That's a big, a big plus. That's booby. I um. Nick likes to, for those listening, because this is not a, a visual medium, Nick will uh, randomly just hold up the first kitty that walks by him. He's got a house full of them. Only and four. I love the kitties. There's four. Well, four. I mean, the ratio to humans and kitties is you're behind the ball, buddy. Um, yeah. So you're outnumbered. And um, and I certainly appreciate a good cat and a cat face. Um, I, I've had also a mixed week. I had a really great weekend that relieved me of my pain and suffering. Uh, I've had a very good, I'll just share with this because we have music listeners listening to this podcast, the podcast. I had a very good mail week where I received my Amigo the Devil record store day that I had to buy off the of Discogs from Germany for a lot of money because Don't I needed ha- to have this fucking thing. I hate buying anything from Europe because they never said yeah. anything. No, they did it. He, he was fucking magical, this guy. I would buy anything from him. Granted, it was quite a bit of money, but uh it was. I treated myself to this record because I love Amigo the Devil that much. He's coming to my neck of the woods soon. I'm going to go see him, maybe have a drink with him. Um, I also got Blood Incantation, Hidden History of the Human Race on colored vinyl. I also got my Spirit Box, Constance Unplugged picture disc. I also received uh, in the mail my Deborah Harry memoir, which I missed a few years ago, and now I just got a cool, pristine copy. And when I was uh, out shopping uh, with my new friend, my new BFF last weekend, I got Erie Vaughn's coffee table book from Bazillion Points about his history as a photographer, which is how he got into basically the last version of the Misfits that became San Hain and then Danzig. So it's a pretty interesting book. He went, he was like at the first Misfits shows as a teenager. And then he was in like basically in San Hain later. That's crazy. I, I would actually really <laughs> like to read that. Yeah, it's it's much more. It's a basically a visual memoir of his stuff he's done, pictures he shot, creepy things himself. It is there's there's some passages, there's some writings, there's some cool things, flyers, cool things. But it's a lot of photos of like early hardcore punk and misfits and all their you know travails. Good to see like young. It's like seeing a young Elvis to see a young handsome dancing. <laughs> if we're talking about mail weeks, uh, so far this week my mail has been shit, but it's only Wednesday. So give me some mm-hmm. time. I ordered Leonard Skinner live one from the road today because I didn't know it existed. I knew there, there were live recordings done as Silver and Platinum had a couple. So I finally am going to have that 11 minute 30 version of Freebird. Wow. On, on sweet vinyl. Because you know what? If there's anything better than Freebird, it's more Freebird. And <laughs> okay. I uh, got uh, the first rossington collins band album a couple, nice. about a week ago so i've got both you're of on those a kick now. 
I, I really am. And I now have, uh, I've decided Leonard Skinner only exists for five albums and one live record. Because what became Leonard Skinner later is a total fucking lie. And it can go to hell and burn. I don't care. But those first five are golden. You cannot, I don't think you, I don't think you can speak again, a single word against those, those first five records. And apparently a live album, theoretically. But I also got my copy of Rush Hemispheres, which I'm going to come out. I'm going to, I'm going to finally admit this to myself and the world. I am a Rush fan. Rush fucking rules. I went I for a long been... time off, like I was on Rush my whole childhood. And then I rushed so hard in the 70s and 80s that I rushed the fuck away in the 90s. And now I've rushed back and unfortunately Neil has passed. But what a great band. I don't play bass. So I and so I don't see why this happened to me. Uh, something happened. Just, you know, keep care of your children. Hug them tightly. Uh, be careful because it's insidious. You, you started slapping the bass, man. Like in uh, no. I Love You, Man. All right. Oh, God. Uh, slapping the bass, man. Because they go Which, through Rush. Jason Siegel and Paul I've never Ryan. seen that movie. That movie's incredible. You need to go see it. I love okay. you, man. Okay, I need to watch that. Um, yeah, I, I became a Rush <laughs> fan on accident. Uh, Tom Sawyer happened, and all of a sudden... Got, I, I found it for five bucks. I bought moving pictures for five bucks, and, well, now... Yeah, it's over. That yeah. might be their best for like that, or Hemispheres are arguably my one number two, number one, number two. For a long time, it was twenty one twelve because I play bass. So of course, plug for Rush. My my first arena show was Rush, and uh, shameless plug. Their director's cut of their movie Cinema Strangiato, their documentary, will be in theaters in early September. Uh, in a global viewing event, if you feel like safe enough to go to the movies, which I'm gonna fucking go because it's Rush. I can understand that. I, uh, yeah, so I got that. Um, trying to think. Oh, we are just days away from my latest Japanese import rare record showing up. Care to guess? Coverdale page again. It wasn't pressed in Japan. <laughs> Deep Purple. I knew the, does it, does it, what does it tell you that I know that? That I've just, nope. Yeah. Um, no, no. Thrill me. Tell me what it is. Uh, my neighbor Totoro soundtrack. Amazing, Ghibli, all uh, the way. I was and that told... is my favorite. That is my favorite Studio Ghibli movie. Is totally it's actually Ghibli. Ghibli. Sorry. I'm no, terrible. I only switched two years ago because I started paying attention <clears throat> to the the katakana because I also speak Japanese, <clears throat> and uh, I'm like, holy shit, it really is Ghibli. So I've I've switched to Ghibli. But uh, nice. yeah, apparently genius Jim, stuff. I love Totoro. My neighbor Totoro uh, is great. My favorite is still Spirited Away, which also I good. consider to be the sequel to Totoro, and because they both got the suit sprites. Mm-hmm. And apparently, mm-hmm. uh, if you tell your wife that you want to buy a fifty-five dollar record, you're told that's a little much because that's not something you're going to listen to all the time. And then if you win a minor jackpot with four deuces on nickel poker, all of a sudden it becomes okay. So that's my week. Awesome. And hope- that it sounds like not as bad, you know, work could be better, but it sounds like a pretty solid week. I, I look forward to seeing your Instagrams of your uh, vinyl. I live vicariously through your Instagrams. I need, I'm, 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 I am on the doorstep of buying a new turntable for the first time in a year or two. So I'm going to set up my new office and I'm going to have a new turntable on my desk with my laptops 
and that's going to be my life work and these and music is all I really care about besides this new person in my life. So good times. Uh, I can't um, wait to, uh, oh, I, and I guess I'll say it because uh, I, I can now because it actually, <laughs> when this comes out, it'll be officially official. We have purchased a new house. Congratulations. In, uh, in six days from today, or I'm sorry, five days. In five days, we will have signed the papers. When I need real grown-up shit in my life, I ask Nick how he's doing, and he comes through every time with real grown-up shit that he achieves. I, now, in fairness, um, look, I am just a big fucking kid, and I have an amazingly mature wife that wants someone to make her laugh. So we've all got, we've all got a part to play. We've all got a song to sing. Mine is cook nachos and make jokes. Word to the bird. Um, one last bit of business that I think we should just point out for those tuning in that have not heard the previous episodes with me on them. We have just wrapped up our series on Metallica in the 1990s. And as we are recording this today, August 11, 2021, is the 30th anniversary of the Blackout. Good Lord. Thank you for making me feel so goddamned old. And instead, we're going to segue to the 41st anniversary of the release of... <laughs> so what are we talking about today? Let's start there. The next series in the uh, Glacial Musical podcast featuring Keefe, we're going to talk Iron Maiden. We're going to talk arguably the greatest band in heavy metal history, perhaps only second to Metallica. But Maiden fans will tell you there is no greater band. I would argue that Metallica, argue. I, I would ar- make the argument that Metallica can no longer be considered a metal band yeah, based on what we discussed in the previous series. If you did not listen to it, if you're just checking this out because it's Iron Maiden, oh my God, check out the, the Metallica series. I get a little sloppy drunk here and there because, you know, uh, alcohol is the, the, the anesthetic which adults live their lives. But, and I deal with a lot of stupid, but... There, there's some great information, and one of the idea I came up with the idea of the Metallica ten-year series, and then Keefe's like, "Well, fuck it, let's do other bands too." So it's become it's, it's it's a continuing series until we start to hate each other or we get too busy. Whichever comes first, I, people get sick of me. It's fine, and but we don't know, we know what we're doing in the seventies, but we'll get uh, we'll get to that later. But so today we are going to start with 1980 with the seventh lineup of Iron Maiden. Right, it took them quite a bit to uh, get the lineup together. But I will when point they did, out when we get to the first time in Iron Maiden history, they have an album, uh, two albums in a row with the same lineup. Uh, spoiler, it's that. not tonight. It's not for a while. No, it's not. They're like the Chili Peppers, but worse. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so just like, uh, you know, without doing the same run-up we did with Metallica's episode one, we'll just we'll just say here, Iron Maiden forms in 1975 by Steve Harris, who had a band called Smiler that was more like bluesy rock. Uh, heavy metal was not a thing yet, but proto-metal was certainly a thing. There were definitely a lot of, you know, obviously Black Sabbath was heavy metal. Judas Priest had been formed around the same, you know, already had records the, out. We're at the point where Black Sabbath isn't metal all the time yet. They no, become, they're able to do other things. They legitimately don't become metal all the time, I would say, until Heaven and Hell. That is fairly accurate. Um, so Maiden forms, and it takes them some time to put the band together, and it takes them some time to get it right. If but, you've uh, ever watched the, the story of Maiden, which is on YouTube or whatever it's called, 
holy yeah. fuck, they go through some people. Yeah, they they definitely went through some people. And before we delve into the record, it bears noting that the lineup that plays on the original Iron Maiden record was not the songwriting team that wrote that record. You know, obviously, Steve, it's Steve's band. It has always been Steve's band. It will always ever be Steve's band. Steve Harris is the progenitor. He Everything begins and ends with him. A lot of lyrics and songs are his. He writes guitar riffs. People don't know that about him. Um, concepts. All kinds of things. A lot of these things come from his wonderful, crazy brain and incredible 10 figures. That being said, in hindsight, Maiden, like most bands, have early members who co-write songs and create parts that they then keep and continue using. And then years later, when they become rich and famous, lawsuits happen. So, uh, you know, original Maiden singer Paul Day uh, apparently has some credits on the first couple of Maiden records or had to get paid for his their usage. Um, you know. Uh, the fact that you can remember the original, original Iron Maiden singer is impressive. Well, I looked it up. And then okay, Dennis, <laughs> Dennis Wilcox, who... Uh, I remember him. Uh, oh, sorry, yeah. Dennis Wilcox, who brought in, uh, basically brought in Dave Murray into the band and then they got rid of Wilcox. Um, and also Dennis Stratton, who briefly has uh, a musical written appearance on the first Iron Maiden record, but he also was quickly out of the band. He was in for a while, but not long enough to, uh, you know, get a credit. Um, so just very, just a very interesting uh, lead up to this heavy metal is start. There's bands coming out of the UK that are starting to play out. Maybe they don't have records out yet. Maybe they're not dominating the world yet, but you're seeing, the sort of transition from classic rock to what will become the new wave of British heavy metal, Motorhead, Judas Priest, Unleashed in the East, and Iron Maiden is a holy trinity to me. But there are can other I, bands. Can I be course. honest? I, I really feel like instead of calling it the new wave of English heavy metal or British heavy metal, shouldn't it have been the, the first wave of true metal? I mean, if, if, if Mayhem can call it, you know, true Norwegian black metal, I'm, I'm going to make this a thing. You could. I would say I think the problem is that you have Germany is a humongous factor in early heavy metal, almost drowning out England until Maiden becomes Maiden, which is right away, by the way. But, sure. um, you know, if you have Accept and Scorpions, who are already huge bands by this time, that's that's a scene. Too, how, let, let's agree on something. We haven't had to discuss this yet. How many bands make a scene? I say it's at least two bands of the same ilk make a scene or a subgenre. Two. I say three, but... I say three, but I mean, we're splitting hairs. Yeah, Not Diamond many. Head is out at this time. Not with a record out till 1980, but Diamond Head, Angel Witch, Witchfinder General. These, you know, other bands are forming along the way. Merciful defi- Fate comes along later. I'm sorry, maybe I wasn't clear. It's definitely a scene. I just think that we like to think that heavy metal is a little older than it really is. Well, I mean, technically, to me, Black Sabbath is the first heavy metal band that has all the elements. There are heavy metal songs. I know a lot of people love to say Blue Cheer. Blue Cheer is a fun band. They're a psychedelic rock band that was heavy. Uh, Politician by Cream could be the first heavy metal song. It almost sounds like Black Sabbath. It's not a heavy metal band. They're kind of a classic right, rock. I, I agree. Acid rock, psychedelic rock band. I, I just think that Black Sabbath wasn't fully... <laughs> they weren't a metal band all the time for almost right. 10 years after they were, after they were created. It took a long time for them. 
well, that's one of the one of the things Duncan and I have discussed in a lot of the proto metal bands and the early metal bands. Samson, Judas Priest, Black Sabbath, the the older stuff. There's a lot of straddling. Mm. It's, it's a lot like America in 1985. Is rap a thing, or is rap a fad? Oh, I think then, it de- I think it depends where you're from. I oh, think rap is definitely a thing. And the, what became a fad was that it kind of bled into pop culture and onto commercialized music. No, I'm talking about the, the musical format itself. I think... Oh, it you definitely know, you, wasn't a fad. No, it, it wasn't. Uh, okay, we're in the 1985 mindset, not yes, 2021. I, but again, I'm from the Bronx, so I'm probably I'm the not. person I'm from, this discussion. I'm from flyover country. Right, I know. So, you know, Red everywhere... Every, Lucy. guy. Blue City, Red States. Although my, blue, although my Blue City is burning down because our Blue City people are fucking morons. But okay. I, not the point. <laughs> in America, in parts that weren't the Bronx or L.A., the rest of us were looking at this going, is this a musical movement or is this a musical revolution? I think it's uh, we can save this for another time because I don't want to pirate. I'm, I'm just making story. the point that, you know, that's where metal was in 1975, 1976. Is okay. this something that's going to continue or is this something or is it disco? Is it grunge or is it hip hop? All right. That's all. That's all. Um, so Iron Maiden begins to take shape. The songs that would be basically the first two albums of Iron Maiden songs are already being performed live and written. And some of them are, you know, on a demo and some of them are getting heard live and never recorded, but like they're inching their way towards something. Um, they get pretty major management in the form of Rod Smallwood, who ends up managing them their whole career. Which amazing, is unbelievably by the way. Unheard of. Guy's amazing. And um, they go in to record what would become the first Iron Maiden record that changes heavy metal forever. Completely. That. Tons of band, even in this form of this band, which is arguably not their best lineup of the band. Arguably, definitely. Shapes, shapes. Well, I'm just saying, like, there are people who are love these first couple records. I was one of them for a long time. Yeah, it doesn't. Bruce. Adrian Smith isn't even on this. No, he wasn't. He was not in the band. Uh, and and frankly, Dave, as a minimal, even though he writes two of, you know, one of the greatest songs in Maiden history that they still play. He's not a huge contributor on this record at all. No, actually, so he wrote Charlotte mo- the Harlot. Get to it, but this is he, mostly Steve Harris's Steve, record. Even Paul, and and you got to give it to Paul. I know people bag on Paul, and they bag on anybody that's not Bruce. We're gonna talk about Paul Diano for a guy who was a basically a punk kind of dude in a metal band. He liked metal, but he was really punk rock. His aesthetic, his style, his work, like things that he did said and his frontman persona his on-stage presence he really put that band on his shoulders beside the great music he is a part of their success and no people like to dog him some of these songs are because paul is great on this record can i give a can i give a shocking take go ahead paul diano is the second best iron maiden vocalist Ouch. I love Blaze Bailey, so no. But anyway, I think you're not I've heard Blaze Bailey recently. Uh, it's The problem is, Blaze isn't cr- great. Great. Singer. No, the, the problem, problem with is Blaze, Blaze isn't Blaze. The problem oh, with Blaze is Steve, is Steve Harris. Well, there, There's good songs, but he didn't write them for Blaze. 
So Blaze uh, yeah. was out of his, well, you know, Blaze is a left fielder. They got him playing shortstop. That's also true. Um, fair enough. Um, so Maiden, you know, and like, I, it's hard for, we weren't in London in this time. And there's two or three concurrent scenes happening in London at this time. Early heavy metal, proto heavy metal, the dance stuff that ends up leading to Joy Division New Order, the factory, things like that, Manchester, and the dance culture scene that also was inspired by DJ stuff, and also punk. And so, like, Maiden straddled a little bit of punk. There's a, a like a little punk energy on these first Maiden records that they never really had again. And it's because of Paul. Again, I'm going to give a lot of respect and love to Paul. I know that a lot of people overlook these records and don't like because the other records are so titanically huge and so flawless in a lot of ways until they had a humongous run this whole decade and we're gonna go they had a pink Floydian style run yeah flawless they're, they're, really flawless they're, there are very few bands in this world ever i mean in <laughs> now that have existed that will exist ever that have a decade like floyd in the 70s like Metallica in the 90s or like Iron Maiden in the 80s. Fair enough, fair enough. And um, so they go in to make this record and uh, they had had, you know, they write and they finish writing and start recording in 79 and Running Free is the first single. And the band is kind of a buzz locally as a scene band. But they, yeah, they um, kick off Running Free as a single in February of 1980, and it immediately goes up the singles chart, which is really unbelievable. They play on top of the pops, which is a humongous thing at that time for a pretty, uh, a band on a, you know, basically an indie label. Uh, I mean, they were, they were on EMI, but like there was no, beside being on EMI, which was actually the biggest record label in the world at this time, almost beside Atlantic. But like, they were not a buzz band except in the streets. Then they got suddenly they have a hit single, they're on TV, and you know that what that does. Even, even for that time, you know what that does once you get that kind of recognition. I would say it's excuse me. I would say especially at that time. At that time, television wasn't what it is now. And being on even if you're on local channel 47 or groovy channel 58. That's, I mean, that was a huge boost of anything. I'm sorry. I, I got the noise. My cell phone charger is. No, like for me, it's, I, I'm burping up those nachos. They're, they're coming back. All and, right. Well. You know, so being on television at that point in time is a huge boost. CIV, Civ, one, wait one minute more. I don't remember how to pronounce it. I love them. I, I, I enjoyed that first, re- that first single and I meant to buy the record and I never did because I was poor in the 90s. But, well. My favorite hardcore punk band ever is Gorilla Biscuits, in which Siv is the singer. And oh, that is a cool band that gave us Walsh Rifles of Quicksand, another one of my personal heroes. So go, I, first of all, the Siv records are great. There's also 13 Day Getaway, which is one of their later records. Um, and yeah, go back and listen to Gorilla Biscuits and uh, maybe we'll do a hardcore version of these uh, series. Um, wow. But anyway, anyway, the point I was making was just having their album, their, their single in rotation in midday in the late in the mid '90s on MTV, got them 250,000 copies sold. Right, a band that has Fair no enough. commercial appeal. Very little. It's enough. Uh, 
and and Maiden was also like a very early, you know, we just celebrated the 40th anniversary of MTV and maybe they weren't one of the first bands on that really was probably Accept or ZZ Top is the first rock guitar based bands to have a video, but definitely in the first year or so Maiden was starting to get rotation with their videos. Um, so following Running Free, interestingly enough, a, a non technically non album track Sanctuary is released as a single in May. Uh, this is the the uh, not only is this song give their manager his his management company name, they also had their own record label at one point with this name. So this is a very paramount. That was their song. label, Sanctuary Records. Oh, it was their manager's label. I didn't know that. I feel like a dumbass. Um, yes, you shouldn't feel like a dumbass. But that was their. I mean, it was technically it's not Maiden's label, but it was their manager. So vis-a-vis, they were they were part of the label at one point. Bruce was on the label at one point. I think. wasn't wasn't Megadeth on that on that label. Megadeth was on that label. Motorhead was on that label. There was quite a bunch of bands. Wow. Also. And then they okay. uh, they went under. But um, so Sanctuary ends up um not great on song the by the way. Pressing up is a great song, but Sanctuary ends up as a single, not on the album in the UK. And when the record comes out in the US, it's on it. So we'll, we'll talk, if we're going to do the track by track, like we've been doing, I'll leave it up to you every time if we will or we won't. But um, why break a why break a not broken thing? It's a fun thing to it's do. it's a good idea. It's a fun thing to do. Um, and it kind of helps us kind of shape the, you know, the, the landscape of the album. But the album officially released 14 of April, 1980. It was recorded in January, but, you know, like mostly... They had written it in in seventy nine and maybe even recorded some of it because they had a single like you could record an album in January and put a single out February eighth. That's crazy. Right, you wouldn't do that today at all. No, well, like Megadeth just did the final vocal take on their new record. That record is probably not coming out till either late this year or early next year. I would imagine that they had written it. I mean, probably starting in like seventy six, but that's neither really here nor there. I mean, yeah, some of these tracks go ill. Steve will tell you some of these tracks go back that far. Um, I, I would also so, point out that this is definitely an album written by uh, a teenager. It's it's a whole bunch of nothing. Yeah, I mean it's young. I'm young, young, dumb, and full of. So now, in fairness, saying? not that Iron Maiden has ever really written about much that wasn't well, that but i would see people would disagree actually one of my favorite comedic bits ever about metal is uh henry rollins who is not as deep as he thinks he is as much as i like respect that guy he likes to pick on he's like oh iron maiden is a band that will tell you how literate they are and how many songs they have based on books oh we wrote a song uh based on phantom of the opera because it's a play and we like plays and we like to read. And he picks on them. It's not untrue. It's not untrue if you think about it. Like a lot, film and literature are really their go-tos beside world history. But the first couple Iron Maiden records, beside being horror themed, which was cool and unique, are basically like fist in the air, middle finger to the sky, pint down my throat, punch somebody in the bar, tough guy, for a guy, for a bunch of guys from London, they were a bunch of toughs. They were not as tough as they think they are. I would say Priest could have messed them up in a fight. Uh, I think Lars Ulrich could have messed up any one of them. Oh, I don't know. 
Lars Ulrich then. I mean, not Lars Ulrich now. No, not, not well. I mean, he's got people who could do it for him now. He's rich. Well, yeah, obviously. But yeah, I mean, Iron, Iron. if you look at Metallica's <clears> first <throat> record, if you look at Kill Em All, basically they're just rewriting Iron, the Iron Maiden records with less horror. For sure. Oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. With less good singing. Um, anyway. Also that. Also that. Kicking off the album with Prowler. Prowler is a fantastic album opener. It's, it's a Maiden song through and through. It's tough. It's sleek. It's got great. That first riff is like a razor blade. Uh, and again, this is not the classic Iron Maiden duo. No, it's this not. Is, it's it's obviously not. There's wah-wah yeah. all over this record. Yeah, there's a lot of wah-wah. Well, that's, again, uh, Dennis Stratton, who was also briefly for this, uh, was on this album and briefly in the band before he was thrown the fuck out. Um, that's like his guitar tone that you hear that opens the record. So I know when, like, now, we think of Maiden as this lineup of Maiden is the lineup of Maiden. But it really was Steve and Paul and and really driving the process. Hard. Completely was. Completely was. And there's um, there, there's nothing I'm, wrong with that. I mean, it, when if you look at the Iron Maiden tree of members, up to this point, I think they've had about 15 different members. Uh, they might have. They might have at this point. Um Clive Burr is also one here, and he's, you know, rest in peace now. But he is a classic element of the early Maiden sounds with his beats. And um, that can't he be is, understated. And listening to a lot of this album, I, I and I've never said anything like this, and I feel like such a turd that I'm about to say this. I found myself wishing for Nico McBrain. A lot of people, but again. Uh, that's but I mean that's just because what I prefer in metal, Nico can play the double bass, and Clive couldn't. Yeah, that's the thing. I think there's some other things also, um, just some choices. But again, this is that time of the in the in this time in the world, this time in music. There's like three guys in the whole world that can play double bass, and that's one of them is fair. Carl Palmer of Emerson Lake and Palmer, who doesn't play metal. So, um, again, Prowler, great, great old. Then you have this nuclear warhead of a song. Let's talk about how incredible Remember Tomorrow is. Remember Tomorrow might be one of the greatest Iron Maiden songs ever, still today. It is an unbelievable song. It You're is looking at me uh, like, it it been, okay, okay, I'll it say It has something. been covered multiple times. The whole composition is incredible. It's five minutes, 30 seconds. And I'm going to say people don't necessarily give Paul his due and associate this song with Paul. One of the things about he doesn't, this- he doesn't have oh, he doesn't have the range that Bruce has, but his performance on this track is magical. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't know that was a pause. I thought that was an invitation. I apologize. You go the, ahead. The thing about this album around this time and towards the end of the first song and the beginning of, the, you know, with uh, with Remember Tomorrow, Running Free, Phantom of the Opera. At this point in time, I'm listening to this album. I listened to it today on my lunch break, eating uh, Beef with Broccoli lunch special, by the way, in case anybody cares. And, and I, this is when... the How do I describe this? You have bands like Kiss. You have bands like Iron Maiden. You have bands like Megadeth that have had... 18 squillion different people and have released 18,000 different records. 
and some did better commercially than others. And then you have the myth that it, the reason why this did poorly and this didn't sell as well is because of X member or Y member or Z trend. Now, the, the belief in Iron Maiden, the, the folklore, as it were, is always the fact that they were waiting for Bruce Dickinson, that they needed Bruce Dickinson to take what they were doing and level it up. Did he do that? Of course he fucking did. He's Bruce fucking Dickinson, and you never question Bruce Dickinson. However, they had always said, you know, Paul Diano, oh, he's punk, he's this, and we had only gone so far, we've gone as far as we could with Paul Diano. And I'm listening to this going, damn, this is way better than I remember. And I always thought my personal issue with the first couple records was Paul Diano. And there are some songs where he should not have sung them. Or they should have changed the vocal melody. But Paul Diano is not the... They, they described him as all stage presence and no ability. That That is the Unfair. myth. That is, that is the myth Iron Maiden has given us over yeah. the past 40 years. And it's false. Paul Diano sings his ass off on this record. Right. The issue Especially with this on this song. Yeah, the issue with this record isn't Paul Diano. The issue with the next record isn't Paul Diano. It's the production choices. Well, yeah, they, Steve has said he hated the production. And uh, it sounds like a 70s yacht rock record, the guitars do. And I mean, it's almost <laughs> like Black Sabbath chose the, the guitar sound from this Iron Maiden self titled record for Born Again. Also true. Which famously, Born Again was mixed with a tweeter with a hole in it. Only the Lord knows why. I don't know. But I um, didn't know it had a hole in it. That's the problem. I mean, you could hear it. Uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, Remember Tomorrow. Incredible song. One of the best heavy metal songs ever. One of the best Iron Maiden songs ever. One of the best bass lines ever. One of the best vocal melodies ever. Uh, here's a good test for people. Go out and seek out the three covers of this song that are particularly wonderful. Uh, Anthrax with John Bush, Metallica, and Opeth have all covered this song. Where is the Metallica cover? I think it's uh, on a Maiden tribute record from Metal Oh, fair enough. fair enough. And it's really great sounding, by the way. Like James now singing this like back then. Fantastic. And you're Trujillo on bass, so... Really well done. Um, track number three, Running Free, one of my personal favorites, not one that everybody would say is their favorite. It's a really short ditty, great bass line. It's got a little bit of that marchy march punk energy. Um, good track to me. This is the perfect song to usher in. This is the, the olive branch to what Metallica and Motorhead become. The, you know, when you look at the beginnings of this, when you look at what Iron Maiden has <clears throat> become after this, they're very dissimilar. But this song is that branch, that gallop. This is the first time, this is the first metal track I can remember with that kind of galloping. That galloping thing that Lars has used to such amazing effect for 40 years. Mm. And again, well Paul Diano belts the belts it out and co-wrote this song, which I assume to mean that he wrote either the vocal melody and or some of the lyrics. I'm sure he didn't write all the lyrics of Remember to Tomorrow, but 
maybe you know, maybe Steve is in you know in charge of that. But like, also the very... lyrics of this are really terrible. <laughs> the whole album or the song? Yes. <laughs> okay. I, I um, had never really understood the lyrics to these records that we're discussing today until this week when I paid attention. <laughs> and Paul Diano, when he when he sang these on on, on record was way more intelligible than when Bruce Dickinson sings them live. I maybe, don't know that Paul is maybe, really responsible for these words, but okay. Maybe Bruce doesn't know the words. I don't know. That's also possible. I think he does. I don't know. Uh, you know, what happens is you sing a song for like 35, 40 years and you change it, right? You change things. But um, Running Free is not terrible. It's a, it's a good song. Coming up, though, next is an, another incredible song. So like strong opener, incredible song, solid song. And a song about a play, Phantom of the Opera, uh, credited basically to Steve, is like progressive metal in 1980. Right, completely. Progressive rock and metal, seven minutes long, uh, interesting motifs, really great writing, good guitar playing, you know, just a memorable song. They still play it today. Covered a lot. Great song. Well, they also did a lot of, you know, the, the guitar is, I can't do them, but... It, it sounds a bit like an organ and that that's amazing. And the idea of in 1980, a metal band singing about something that wasn't stupid is, is, I mean, that's like, that's like an alien coming down and saying, I want to have sex with you. That's as likely as that, you know, in the, in the American consciousness, probably the English as well, you know, Singing about something not just smart, but legitimately intellectual and classy. And it's amazing. And again, it, I, I, I'm going to say this a lot today, but I was continually surprised by how much better Paul Diano was than I remembered. That's a great compliment. And uh, again, no problem. So Family Opera rules. Um, so far, no poor songs at all. Uh then Correct. bold choice for a debut album. Side two begins with an instrumental, Transylvania, which immediately when you think of Transylvania, you think of vampires, Dracula, and it's creepy, it's moody. It's a pretty good instrumental. Uh, I can't think of too many instrumentals from this time that were not like a guitar intro for an album. So pretty ballsy to put a, a complete instrumental on as the first, first song of side two of a vinyl in 1980. It's worth mentioning that back then there were sides. You couldn't listen to anything without sides. And I've had more than one artist, vinyl loving artist in the world, in, the, in this world, tell me they view a record, regardless of whether it's CD or download, as two sides, because that's how they grew up. I think until we get into the 1990s, which might be some time from now, I don't think we're going to refer to anything other than side A and side B. I would say um, that's accurate. That's probably accurate. Um, so Transylvania, pretty good, right? Pretty I would good. agree. I mean, Iron Maiden stretching their musical chops. One of the things I was going to mention this earlier, but I'll mention it now. This is their first album. This is Iron Maiden with, when you consider what the classic lineup is, I would say the classic lineup is the Power Slave lineup. Just, just me. Fair. Fair. And this is only what, 40% of the Power Slave lineup? Yeah. Well, um, you Barely. got Bruce. You got Bruce, Barely. and you got no. Yeah, you got Bruce, and you got and you got Murray, or not Bruce? Well, I'm Bruce sorry. is not on this. Not, and not Bruce. Is, I'm sorry. 
You have Murray, Steve. you have Murray and Steve. That's it. And and let's face it again, Dave is not really a contributor on this record except the one song and rhythm but, guitars but he, and a little but bit of solos. Me, right, right. But hear me out. You have 40% of what I think most of us would consider to be the classic lineup, but you already have the classic sound. That's fair. That's very fair. Except for, uh, you know, Bruce, without the, yeah, except for Paul not being not having the 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 range of Bruce. Yeah, well, but no one does. I mean, who does? Who King does? Diamond does. That's it. Yeah, I uh, mean, barely. Uh, Halford. Um, Pat Benatar. Track six. I love Pat Benatar's track. Track six, Strange World. A solid song. Uh, I don't think of it as great, but it's solid. Uh, it's not short. That definitely is a thing. It's it's, it's not a short song. It's 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 a, a late side two Iron Maiden song. Yeah. Okay. Is, is it the weak? Is it the weakest song on this first record? It is the weakest did. song because it's the one song on this record that I have no memory of. Okay. And I listened to it today. <clears throat> it's all right. You yeah. know, Iron Maiden is a band that has not done as many amazing records as I would like. They've done a lot more amazing songs. We'll get into that more as we get a little bit deeper into this. We're not. Not for a couple of weeks. We'll, we'll revisit this in a couple of weeks. How about that? Okay. Then the aforementioned Charlotte the Harlot, which Dave Murray said is based on a person he actually knew, uh, a woman of the night. Um, Today, when I listen to that, again, it's the first time I heard the lyrics. That's not a, great lyrically, but a no. very good heavy metal song. Agreed. But I mean, De- there's definitely not, a B song. How, how many great songs are there? on this album so far lyrically uh two two <laughs> okay that we're on track eight yes two on a band but, but that i'm gonna say noted. that remember tomorrow is like a 10 yeah but lyrically we're talking about a band music. noted for their lyrics unless you're henry Rollins. and then finally as you know one of my my peeves in the whole world is bands with a song named for them or a band name for a song Iron Maiden, the song, still played today in every concert virtually they do. Still a great song. Paul destroys this song in the best possible way. He oh, wins yeah. on this song. Uh, the whole thing is awesome. And it definitely helped, you know, like if you became a heavy metal fan and you and the song Iron Maiden comes on by Iron Maiden, you freak out because it's great. I mean, right. it's, so it's, just, far, it's far noisier on the album than it is live. And take that how it, it, take that as a good thing or a bad thing, how whatever your mileage is. But it, it's this is the song that has the most punk energy to me. I think most people would say "Running Free," but this is a song that is that. I mean, it is the definition of pretentious metal. You know, the lyrics are bad. Let's call a thing what it is. The lyrics are bad. The the playing is dissonant. The this is everything the PMRC said metal was. Which I mean, nine times out of ten, when they do that, that song is awful and I hate it. But this song is amazing. And yeah, once you know the intro to this song, you will never. It'll never leave you. Indeed. We have to talk about one more thing before we discuss anything else in the early year. You know, not year one, but like the year one of this album. Year one is... We're going to call it year one because it's just simpler. 
we, we, we cannot, no discussion of Iron Maiden can take place without a discussion including illustrator extraordinaire, Derek Riggs. Derek Riggs draws this cover. Eddie, the Ed, that's what it is, Eddie the head, the, the zombified head of a person. That's what Eddie is supposed to be. If you, the, the front cover looks like a punk guy. It's supposed to kind of be Diano, actually, I think. I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, it's London at night, the full moon and some street lights and some brick fa facade and, and an ominous clouds and uh, shrieking zombie on the front cover and the classic logo font that has been the logo font, you know, for eternity. Uh, multiple, you know, copied, always imitated, never duplicated. The There's Iron Maiden. about like five bands that have existed more than 10 years. They kept the same logo the entire time. Yeah, they are one. Yeah, and it, it's still awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, what you? why would you change it? It's perfect. Why did Metallica change theirs? It was perfect. They were idiots. Um, Agreed. They should never have changed it. And they've now had three or four different logos. So I don't know what to tell you. Um, imagine all the poor bastards with the Ninja Star tattooed on them. Anyway, sorry, oh, everybody. Nope, nope, hard pass. Hard pass. Um, but yeah, this album cover, This so this album, I would probably say in retrospective, I mean, obviously, like, historically, this album feels, like, bigger than it is. It's probably an 8 of 10, or, you know, it's not quite a 9. The greatest songs are incredible, right? And the rest of it is, it's not filler, but it's not the level of the best ones. So, like, I, I would were, call this you know, album a strong B-. minus. Okay. I the mean, song? I think it's... I it has to be kind of at least a B. It invented a genre, you know? I agree with everything you've said. It, You know, the highs are very high. But what amazes me the most, you know, you look at, they have Eddie. They have that font. They have their logo. And they have their style on day one. Nobody, nobody has that. No other, right. almost no other, except Black Sabbath. No other band has that. Black Sabbath didn't have that. If you heard Technical Ecstasy. Yeah. I have recently and I regret it. I'll be hearing it again this That's later, though. Duncan. Yeah, that's, that's later. But um, they have their brand. They have everything on day one. All they, and all they have done since that moment is to made it better. Yeah. It was an immediate hit, by the way, like I said, in the UK, but based on this early singles, they did bonkers in mainland England and were on the charts. And then they went on tour and they were shocked at the rest of Europe was like into it and packed shows, sold out, sold every shirt, sold every album vinyl, couldn't keep up with demand. They were like, holy, how did this become a hit? Like they couldn't believe it. And, um, you know, I think it, at the time, most of the press was favorable. I don't care so much about those things, but it's always interesting to note when it's not. Um, and just, you know, like, let's also just talk about meaner, scarier, faster, not harder, but those other things compared to the metal bands of that day, except Judas Priest and Motorhead, which was kind of not quite formed and they had great songs, but they didn't have good albums and they actually weren't well widely known except in, in the UK because of their bad record deal. So they didn't have the global acclaim they didn't have until a few years it, later. It took a long time for Motorhead to really coalesce into what they were. Yeah, we might have to do Motorhead in the 80s at some point. I'm not sure. Um, I do love that band, and I love Lemmy. 
Um, so they go on tour, they do wildly successful, and then they go back in the studio, and basically a year later, uh, a year, almost a year to the day of the Running Free single, Killers comes out. And before we go delve into Killers, I think it's probably time for a break. Yeah, I think we're a little overdue. And we're back. So, Killers. Killers comes out. That is one of the first Iron Maiden albums I heard. The first, of course, was, as most people in middle America at the time, was Number of the Beast, but we went back to Killers. Iron Maiden, the self-titled, actually, and I probably should have mentioned this sooner, but I didn't hear it till much later. Probably a lot of people, actually. And I'm going to say that also for me and my experience that I always love talking about with you, and in general, because... I'm crazy, is that Iron Maiden was played on the classic rock station in New York also. So you had metal bands, metal music played on the classic rock station in a big, big city, which only helps foster and grow a love of this band that goes beyond the reach of metal heads. Because also, also by the time this album, by the time Killers comes out, you have a huge album from Ozzy, almost two huge albums from Ozzy to start his solo career. Agreed. You have Dio and Heaven and Hell Agreed. with Sabbath. You have a good motor, a pretty oh, and, great motor. Uh, and and uh, Mob Rules. They did Heaven and Hell, Mob Rules right in a row. Back to back. So, like, All there's now uh, um, uh, ma- ma- uh, Priest has a bunch of records that start like bang, bang, bang in a row. It may be like one record that's not that great, and the rest are all bangers. Like, are we gonna? Are we not gonna mention uh, music from the Elder? We are not gonna mention music from the Elder. Sorry. Um, yeah, we're not. And then uh, you know, a little band named Metallica also uh, came around at this time. Uh, yeah, I mean, at this moment, I heavy metal goes from a side idea, uh, a thing that you dip your toes into into a legitimate genre of music. That's, I think 1981 is the moment that it becomes a thing. And then what, 1982, 83, you have Quiet Riot hitting number one as heavy metal. And we're off. We are off to the races. And so they go in the studio to make the second record, pick a better studio, Connect. Let's talk about Martin Birch and the Titanic uh, effect Martin Birch had on Maiden from the second record on. Uh, this begins a tremendous run of albums. And the first record we already had noted is excellent. But Martin comes in with his career and he had produced Purple. And hang on, hang on, hang on. We missed a bit. We, we missed a bit. What's different? Well, I mean, we still have Paul. Correct. We have a better band, but I was well, going to talk that? about Martin first. Well, they have like the more a more uh, competent lineup with the addition of one Adrian Smith. Adrian Smith. So the second lineup, second. Now, your average person considers the original lineup to be whoever was on the first album. That's what we're going to go with because it keeps it simple. So second album, first lineup change. Fair enough. Um, so the, so the lineup for this album is Paul, Dave, Adrian, Steve, and Clive would, would compete against most competent, great bands with that lineup. 
Clive for the time was an excellent drummer. Maybe he's not the strongest or flashiest it's, technically, but like it's he not was fair of me to talk about the way, talk about him the way I did because I was hoping he would do things that people in the future did. I mean, I mean, time. like here's a conversation I've had that we may have someday. Can you talk about Testament and talk about like how much better John Tempesta and Gene Hoagland are than Louis Clemente? It's the same conversation. It's like, is it fair to Louis Clemente who played on all the early important Testament records that he's just a decent drummer and a wonderful guy by all accounts, but like John Tempesta is incredible and Gene Hoagland is the greatest drummer ever, arguably maybe. So like, is it fair to Luke Clemente when he helped start the band? No, I, I totally get or that. Rat it's Skates like... and Overkill. Would you take Jason Bittner? Or rat skates. I'm gonna take Jason Bitter every time. It's like comparing Kirk Hammett to Alex Skolnick. Alex Skolnick is the best lead guitarist in thrash metal. Another yeah. time. Another time, please. Same, it's uh, the same difference. We just did four Metallica episodes. It, it's not and, it's and not fair of me to say I wanted what would what they could do in the future now. <clears throat> it's not okay. fair of me. That's all I'm gonna say. Um Luckily, Kirk didn't write the ritual. But I'm bummed. Anyway, horrible. I don't have that Anyway, you know, there's a reason why. So, Martin Birch, great lineup. Another great album cover. Uh, one of the most iconic a album covers. Better album cover than the first. Superior album cover. Um, again, still kind of a zombie guy. Classic Iron Maiden, same positioning, same font, everything great. Killers in a little blood like almost a painted blood splatter. Uh, he's got a, you know, he's got a hammer. It's pretty gruesome. Hatchet. Hatchet. This, one, this one, it changes Eddie from this little goof into a monster. Right. I, I think that's significant because being, fr as I'm from middle America and, you know, Keefe is what, a coastal elite. Um, oh my I, God. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I can't wait to be one of those guys, but I'm just not one yet. I got to move there first. But in middle America, oh my God, this album cover, Number of the Beast, Peace of Mind. Terrifying. Oh, oh this is killers. I know. this. I'm saying this one and okay. the next and the, and the following terrified mothers in middle America. That was the definition of Satanism and the human right. sacrifice. And it, it it's a much better picture. Eddie is not deformed. Eddie is fully formed as the zombie Zom zombie whatever whatever you want to call him he is fully yeah. formed in the face as we would see him from this point to probably long after i die because i don't think iron maiden will ever die okay um sorry yes sorry. i hope not let's get yeah um so you know they uh they put this record out. I think this is a first case where the album actually comes out before the singles for whatever reason, because they probably rushed the album out and then have time to press the single. And uh, your singles are Twilight Zone, Back with Wrathchild, and Purgatory, which comes later in the summer. But uh, yeah, I mean, like from the very first time I ever heard this record, and I probably heard Wrathchild as the very first song I ever heard off this record, and it was amazing. Uh, it is a, it is again another Paul banger. Almost um, this entire record is written by Paul, with no assistance from anyone else except Paul, who is who is credited on Killers. So even with Dave and Adrian, none of them have a writing credit on 
So. Yeah, it's 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 Paul and Steve. Yeah, it's a little bit of Paul and mostly all Steve. Yeah. Um, but so the, Iron Maiden is mostly all Steve. It always Iron has Maiden been. It always Steve. will be. And it's a lot of uh, historical figures and horror stories and plays and books. So, and cliches. Let's talk about, let's not leave out cliches. Steve loves a good cliche. Um, the album begins with an instrumental, much more typical for the time in metal and rock. The Ides of March, still heard sometimes today in the open to the Maiden shows. Still heard sometimes before Wrathchild is played, when they do play it, rarely now, but sometimes. Uh, Ides of March is a fun uh, intro. It's good, right? It's good. It's dramatic. It, I think that is. I think that is probably the song that created the ninety-minute death metal intros that we got ten years later. <laughs> Perhaps for and ten years later till now, which need to right. go away. Well, depends on the band. Some bands. Uh, if you're Rivers of Nihil, please do more. If you're not them, shut up. Um, Fair enough. I love Wrathchild. I, I, it's not about anything. I'm a no, child. it's not. Do, 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 do. I'm a badass. I'm a punk, basically. But right. it is an awesome, fun song. It's under three minutes. It's super fast. That's fun. The thing about a lot of these great songs off of the the, the Paul <laughs> records is Bruce can do them just as well without, like Wrathchild, Wrathchild and Sanctuary, which my God, I heard the lyric for the first time today, and holy fuck, they're stupid. But not the point. He does. Bruce doesn't take those songs in whip them into Bruce, you know, in the number of the beast territory. He just sings them. And I, I think that is a great testament to Paul Diano that Bruce Dickinson, who sings arguably, realistically, 30 times better than Paul on Paul's best day, doesn't take them into Bruce territory. He sings them like Paul does. Fair enough. Um... Wrathchild gives way to Murders in the Room Org, another great song to me. All right. No, no, no. no. I like the first album better than this one, which weirds me out. Um, I, I think the first album's a little deeper, but I think that this record is actually, this record is longer, Has it's about the same length an album, but it has two more songs. I mm -hmm. think that the first record is more consistent, and this record has got a little more depth and range. That's my personal. It always has been. I actually prefer this record, but the first Iron Maiden record is great. It's got bangers. Remember Tomorrow. Remember Tomorrow would be the best song on here by a lot. Um, but again, a lot of bands shoot their load, write one great song, and never even have a good one again. So Agreed. Agreed. Um, so Murders in the Room War, Another Life, solid. Solid. Not great. Not a big fan. I mean, it. it the fact that it didn't make it past what? Bruce's second tour? Third tour? Yeah, it's just not for me. And by then, by the Bruce's third or fourth tour, they have two more albums. Um, True. That are all three albums. Inc yeah, incredible. Uh, Genghis Khan, good instrumental. Another one, two instrumentals out of 10 tracks. Interesting. On first, two instrumentals which, on the same side. Which becomes, a, which becomes very metal not long after this. Yeah, it becomes the, a thing. I think it can't be understated how much trailblazing was done on these two records. And Iron Maiden is never credited for trailblazing. Mm. 
not in any circles I've ever run in or anything I've ever read. It's always been, oh, it's the twin gun style. Judas Priest is better. Uh, I, I, uh, I would argue that Iron Maiden is better than Judas Priest any day of the week. And I would also argue, well, we can fight that another day. But I would also, but I would argue that Iron Maiden has done far more to blaze trails. And these two records are, uh, it's basically branding a cow is that hot. Okay, that's fair. Um, so Genghis Khan is excellent. Another, even though it's like, you would think like two instrumentals, there's no way they could both be good. They're both good or better than good. They're actually both. Look, look at the people good. playing them. How could they not be good? Well, we've seen many great bands make bad songs. Um, True. Innocent Exile closes outside one, and I have always thought it was an underrated song. It's not the best, but it's underrated. It's better than just solid. It's actually pretty good. Fair enough. Uh, and then side two is a blackout of awesome killers. Whew, that's a that's a rough one. That is like you the think first, it's a rough one. I, I don't mean rough as in poor. I oh. mean rough as in holy shit! I listened to this and now I'm looking over my shoulders. Yes. You know, Ten years later, NWA would create the first reality rap. This is the first reality metal. Probably, yeah. It's, I, I mean, mean, besides Sabbath, it's crazy. Uh, Killers no, is wild. There was, there was no reality in Sabbath. I mean, re- oh, I don't know. Nuclear war and drugs oh. and Holocaust, I think, is pretty real. It's pretty no, gritty. No, because nuclear war hasn't happened. Holocaust, I mean, complete Holocaust hasn't happened. Obviously, there were attempts at genocide. This is something that everyone can relate to, especially those of us living in the gritty city life where we have way too many murders and way too many armed robberies. That's what makes that scary. Just like NWA singing about the same stuff 10 years later. Very good. Prodigal Son, also awesome. The length, the lengthiest song on this record, six minutes and five seconds. Another that, kind of proggy thing. That was my least favorite song on this album because I didn't think that Paul Diano had the range and the strength for that one. Well, this is probably where 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 Steve is probably like writing stuff that's probably ahead of Paul now. Agreed. Even though, again, Paul is a huge part of their success. He is the best part of some of these songs. Oh, comp- the the first album. Paul is the MVP. Yeah. <clears throat> he, he's a pretty close second here. Uh, Purgatory is also amazing. That's why it was chosen as... A, it's kind of amazing that Purgatory is a single, but, but and Wrathchild was a B-side of a single, but, like, Murders in the Rue Morgue wasn't, and, you know, like... I don't think Murders in the Rue Morgue is that good. Oh, I guess it is. It... It feels... That... That recording feels so rushed okay this whole album or just that song that parts of this album but especially that song i think that song is the the poster child of this album being rushed it doesn't feel done it feels like half of kiss's 70s catalog not done okay and then they close out the record with drifter which is solid but not spectacular to me but still pretty good at this time in the world. It's a good song. It's just not the greatest song. Well, and this this album is in 
in com- compare because I, I listened to this one and you know in the debut I listened to both of them over the last couple of days and I'm amazed at how much better I like the first one than this which and I'm also amazed at how much I really appreciated Paul Diano on both of these albums because I believe much like listening to Kiss believing that everything in the 80s was terrible I believe that everything Paul touched was terrible and both both that is this narrative we were given and not actually the facts and I'm also going to say what I I have failed to have neglected one thing which is there's no discussion of killers without Twilight Zone which is not on the record proper it is on the American version of the record, which I had heard. It is the fourth single off the record. Comes out, uh, you know, quite a bit of time. You know, they put out a series of singles in a row. Twilight Zone is an excellent song. Would be one of the best songs on the record if it was on the first release of the record. It's on the U.S. version. It's on a couple of other versions. And, like, so, like, one of the things that I love in life is toys based on music and music things. So I love Super 7 Toys. And Super 7 Toys has an entire line of Iron Maiden Eddies, including a Twilight Zone one, because they have one Eddie for every album and single that has a unique Eddie. So the Twilight Zone Eddie is the ghost Eddie. And the, and the, the, the artwork for this single is amazing, and you should all seek it out. because And again, Rapchild is actually the A-side. And this was the, the double A-side, which was a th- an industry thing back then. So basically, two no B-side, it's two A's. But like dumb pretty dumb but like whatever and um it's a song that has grown in years in the fandom i think it's a song that maybe was maybe missed at the time because suddenly there's a lot of records and singles coming out from great bands and that record was very hot at that time as you said wasn't that on the expanded version of uh, live after death or did I it is that? on live after death they played it there it's on it's also on like women in uniform which is a cover that they got known that was on the australian version yes it is yes so yeah technically non-album tracks was the thing at this time in the world and you know it was like a way to make people buy more things i'm sorry can i just say fuck that noise i just just a little bit just put it on the record just well like there's a read like why did japan always get the extra tracks why like on Psycho Circus, Japan got an entire second disc of live recordings. Fuck you, Japan. Do we need those live recordings? Ikso. Baka. Okay. Sorry. We are squirreling away here. Anyway. I'm just gonna speak every language I know. I mean just whatever. Swell. <laughs> um, <laughs> just swell. I'll stick um, with English. You probably should. So yeah, I mean, but we, yes, it's the generally the, if you, we, if we count Twilight Zone as part of this album, it's the it's the equal of of uh, the solo, you know, the self title record. If you don't count Twilight Zone, I feel like Iron Maiden, like I said, it's got more impact because it was first and tra- blazed a lot of trails, as you would have now said. But I think the second record is actually a deeper experience, even without Twilight Zone. I'm I'm gonna disagree on that, but. With a caveat, these I, I always looked at these albums as Iron Maiden before they found themselves, which is extraordinarily wrong. You listen back to this, Paul Diano has a much better range and a much better strength 
than he was ever given credit for. And he carried the first record, and he was not even close to being a passenger on the second. These are great records. He has writing credits, and those other guys basically don't accept. Yeah, one Dave song. Murray's got like you know the middle finger. That that's what he was given on this one, the middle finger. You know, Adrian Smith has nothing till the next record. You know, when when you think when the name Adrian Smith comes to mind, we all think of him as the original guitarist of Iron Maiden. I mean, he's not. By he has carried any, that band for many years with his right. playing. Right. By, by no definition is he original at all in this band. And, but he didn't get a credit. I mean, why did you bring him in? I don't know. Why did you bring him in that day if you weren't, weren't going to write? But, you know, Paul Diano and Steve Harris, this was their band for two years, for two albums, three, probably we'll call it three years, two albums, three years. Some amazing music. Don't let anybody tell you it's not because it's, you know, the first record, you have Iron Maiden, logo, brand, style. It's really hard to top. I mean, these records still hold up. They're still pretty great. And I'm, and I'm not I'll, saying that the second, I'm not saying Killers is a bad album. Is it sophomore? To me, it's a bit sophomore slumpy, but not. It I definitely has three songs you could bin for if you want to count Killers, I don't. But like, you could definitely lose Another Life. You could definitely lose Drifter. And if you don't, I think Prodigal Son is solid. Innocent Exile is solid. But if you wanted to get rid of one of them, I'd be okay with that. So, again, the first record is 37 minutes and eight songs. This record is 10 songs and 38 minutes with two instrumentals that total almost five, you know, basically five minutes. There, so. there's, there's definitely some padding on this album to get to that point. It okay. happens. It's fine. It's not... It's not a bad record. It's not any worse than anything they did this this decade, which there are, in my opinion, and it's a minority one, there's some padding as we get a little later in the 80s. Okay. Um, but, and Dave Murray, by the way, wrote Twilight Zone. So I omitted okay. to mention that also. But so he, gets at least one, he, he gets one writing credit. He co-wrote it. He okay. co-wrote Twilight Zone. He gets he wrote, a credit. Charlotte the Harlot. He gets a, a credit. credit. Uh, Adrian gets nada. So, you know, these are two guys that they lean on quite a bit. Starting, uh, what, next week? Starting next week. We will, unless there's anything else you would like to say about these two records in this era, I recommend going back and listening to these. We still hear, we hear these songs all the time. Paul is great, doesn't get enough credit. I know that, you know, he's had a very rough go, and I'm really hoping the best for him soon. Um, I would really love to see him in America one more time in my lifetime, or I'm going to have to go to Europe if he can get back out and play again. That's also debatable, but well, he is. Yeah. We, we, we hear these songs. Agreed. Completely agreed. And you know what? He is to Iron Maiden. And I'm going to say this, and it's a hot take. Paul Diano is to Iron Maiden. What Sid Barrett was to Pink Floyd. He was a bridge. He was a start. He was, you know, he was the, the straw that stirred the drink at that time. Will the Iron Maidens be as successful as they are now with him? No. Would they have been very successful? Yes. With Paul, had they never dropped Paul Diano, Iron Maiden achieves Testament or Megadeth level tops. Somewhere between that. That's my opinion. And, you know, yeah, definitely go back and listen to these because you know what? You, if you listen to this, 
you're going to hear a lot more than you remember. I like that as a close, my friend. We will do it next week with uh, the second episode of Iron Maiden where we talk about a giant zombie desiccating guy puppeteering actual fucking Satan. Which uh, next week for me, no streaming, all vinyl. This is the Glacial Musical Podcast. Doesn't play in Peoria.